Good morning. It is uh, an absolute uh, delight and pleasure and privilege and every good thing to be here in front of you. And I want to say a special welcome to uh, my friends from Oroville. So thank you for coming. And my friend from Modesto, thank you for coming. Thank you all for coming. Um, the title of the sermon today, Wanted Stand-Up Guys and Gals. The video we just saw illustrated exactly what I'm wanting to convey to all of you in the sermon today. There was a bully, bad boy, bad guy, throwing his weight around. And the kids in the video, I think they were probably sixth, seventh, eighth graders. Like we had sixth graders, I think, singing today. Um, I want to invite a sixth grader up here. Who's the bravest sixth grader? Come up here. That one. So, did you watch the video? Yeah. Yeah. How would it have felt to stand up to the big guy? Um, kind of good, because we're protecting the other guy that's getting bullied. That would have felt good. How else would it have felt? Um, what would it have required of you? Compassion and to be brave enough. To compassion, to be brave. And I'll suggest it be scary, too. The bully was a lot bigger than him. Thank you. This took some courage, too. Thank you. Standing up when there is something wrong takes some courage. And it is God's will for all of us to be stand-up guys and to be stand-up gals. Whether you're a sixth grader, seventh grader, eighth grader, young adult, uh, mature adult, I believe God calls us to stand up. He calls us to stand up. In my life, when I'm going back to when I was 17 years old, I was a senior in high school. I experienced uh, two things somewhat like in the video that I'm gonna tell you about. I'm 17, I'm a senior in high school. My mom, I grew up with my mother, it was me and my mom. And we had moved to a new, a new apartment in a new neighborhood. New apartment, yay, new apartment, that's good. And there was a bowling alley about maybe four blocks away from the apartment. And I went bowling with some friends of mine. I think it was the first time I'd ever gone bowling in my life. And I got an 80. <laughs> I still remember that. And now I'm walking to the apartment from the bowling alley. It was again about four blocks away. We'd only lived there maybe a week. It was a brand new neighborhood. Didn't really know anything about the neighborhood. And I'm about two blocks from home, and I'm in front of an apartment building. And uh, this is important. The apartment wasn't, the front door of the apartment was no further than the piano is from the sidewalk, from where I was on the sidewalk. I'm just right, I'm even closer. About that far away is the apartment building and the front door, and there's a window there. And there was a television on. And as I was preparing this, I realized this was a long time ago. It was a black and white television. 
Most of, a lot of you here don't remember black and white televisions, but there was this like blue light that emitted from black and white televisions that you could see through the window. And now there were two men, two younger guys in front of me, and a lot of you know Monty Nystrom. Monty Nystrom's 6'4", he told me the other day. So one of these guys is a big guy like Monty Nystrom. And then next to him, I'm gonna say was Brian Dudar. Since you all know who those men are, most of you do. And suddenly they turn around and they say, one of them says, give me a quarter. That tells you this is a long time ago. Today they'd ask for a dollar, right? They wanted a quarter. Give me a quarter. Well, I probably, I'm sure I had a quarter in my pocket, 50 cents, but I did not want to give them a quarter. And so the big guy, the one like Monty Nystrom, he smashes me in the face. He split my lip. I still have a, uh, a lump in my lip from that. And then the guy who's the size of Brian Dudar, he punches me in the stomach, and they're having fun, and I'm crying. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fighter. I don't know how to fight. I have no clue. And that blue light through the, from the black and white television through the window, it's, it's not six feet away. And I'm crying. I'm in trouble. These guys are more than being bullies. They're beating me. It was more than just like a threat. I mean, they were really hitting me. And it hurt. And whoever was inside watching TV, maybe they're watching Gilligan's Island or Hogan's Heroes or Gunsmoke, you know, shows from the past, they didn't get up and come out and say, stop it. They just sat there and kept watching television. That was a long time ago, and I've never forgot that blue television light. Oh, I left one thing out. Oh, well, we'll forget that. It doesn't matter now. Second time, I was out walking. I didn't grow up in the best city, folks. Um, for my friends from Oroville, think of the south side of Oroville. That's where I grew up. So I had a new girlfriend, and she was this Japanese girl, and she had long black hair, and she was so pretty, and she was so wonderful. Oh, she's sitting in the second row. And, and uh, I walked her home. And you know, I'm walking on the clouds. I'd just been with my girlfriend, and she's pretty and wonderful, and my heart's beating fast, and I'm so happy. And now I'm about 100 yards from her house, and um, I'm in front of a vacant lot, and suddenly out of this vacant lot appear 10 or 12 uh, kids my age, teenagers, and they surround me. And in the city I grew up, there was a gang called the 12th Street Gang. And uh, you didn't walk on 12th Street. You absolutely did not walk on 12th Street. And I, I don't, you know, they didn't show me their business cards saying I'm a member of the 12th Street Gang, but I'm real sure they were. They were a gang that went back to the 40s. They're a gang that still exists in Pomona. And it was real clear what they were going to do. 
they were going to they were going to beat me and why were they going to beat me because they could because they wanted to because i was walking down the street and they didn't want me there and um what could i do and then an amazing thing happened a car stopped as i recall it was a volkswagen a beetle and there was a woman in it about 25 years old windows rolled down and she said do you want a ride yes i did <laughs> <laughs> and the gang guys they were pretty surprised and they kind of stepped back and i got in the car i opened the door to get in the car this is another sign of how long ago this was there was a baby lying on the front seat not in a car seat This was in the days before car seats like black and white TVs, okay? And she drove me away from there and she saved me from the beating. And I asked her, "Why did you do that? That was risky." I mean, you could have got hurt. The gang guys could have got, you know. And she says it happened to my brother once. I didn't want to see it happen again. like the kids in the video she stood up well she stopped she didn't stand up but she stopped which was the same as standing up and she saved me and that took some compassion and that took some courage and it had to be a little scary for her to stop and help somebody and she didn't know me at all she'd never met me before so a week ago i'm here in church and uh a friend of mine named Jim Adams was here. I he doesn't normally come. He's from Oroville. He's 80 years old. He's not a young man. I've known Jim for a lot of years. I call him one of the top 5 guys on the planet. I really like Jim. But he he's not Monty Nystrom, okay? He's not 6-4. He's maybe 5-6 if he tries really hard. And he's 80 years old. and i'm talking to jim and telling him about my plan for this sermon and he showed me a picture and now we got to make this work ah uh, he told me a story and he showed me the picture you see jim was in the last two or three weeks he was walking um, by feather river there's a path next to feather river in oroville and he was there to get some exercise And as he was there, he saw the man in the photo laying in the dirt, face down, um, no shirt on, pair of shorts. Temperature would have been probably about 90 degrees. So what do you do? This guy's in bad shape. Should I do something? Um, I'm 80 years old. What can I do? I got bad knees. I didn't I didn't ask for this. And as Jim is there looking at the guy and thinking, two other men came along. And man number 1, this is what he did. He kept walking. He just kept walking. He didn't stop. He didn't hesitate. He just kept going. And now man number 2 comes along and he made a snide comment and a snide remark about the guy laying in the dirt face down. and he kept walking but he made a snide remark 
My friend Jim is what I call a stand-up guy. He decided to do something. First thing that occurred to him was the guy's going to burn to a crisp laying out here in the hot sun. I'm going to go get a, a sheet and put it over him so he doesn't burn. Well, first he made sure the guy was alive. He was breathing. He was breathing. He was alive. And so he went and got a sheet and put it over him. That was kind. That was nice. That was good. Thumbs up. And then it occurred to Jim, I think I should do more than this. And I can't see very well. Is that you, Jim? Yeah, my friend Jim's here. Hi. So welcome to you. And my friend Jim decided to wake the guy up and ask him if he could help him and give him a ride. And the guy said, yeah. And Jim gave him a ride. Now, I am guessing that that would be like a little bit scary thing to do. Now, you're 80 years old. He's a great guy, but he's not a young, strong guy. And there could be the possibility of trouble because that guy looks bigger than Jim. Jim, I didn't know you'd be sitting there. Jim, stand up, would you? Come on, <laughs> just so they can see what you look like. He's not a big guy, okay? He's not a big, strong, imposing guy. Jim saw something wrong and he acted. He acted compassionately. He acted kindly. The, the first boy in the video, he saw something wrong. He stood up. He said something. He confronted what was wrong. The woman in the car who stopped and kept me from getting a beating all those years ago, she, she did something good. The guy, the, I don't know if it was a man or a woman, whoever was watching that television set while I was getting beaten a few feet away, not good, not good. I could end the sermon, I probably should end the sermon right there. You're all called to be the stand-up guy, the stand-up gal, not to be the person who just keeps watching TV. Now, next slide. I have a bunch of slides here. Um, I don't know how well you can read that, but it's on the front of all your bulletins. If you can't read it, go to the front of your bulletin. It's on the front of your bulletin. It says, the greatest want of the world is the want of men. Not men in general, but the greatest want of the world is men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. So each of these examples I've given you, they saw something wrong and they reacted. They weren't overcome by, my friend Jim wasn't overcome by fear. The woman who stopped and helped me wasn't overcome by fear. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. That's referring to a needle in a, in a compass. Men who will stand for right though the heavens fall. That's a quote from Ellen White. 
A lot of you here today, most of you here today are Seventh-day Adventists. There's a lot of Adventists who believe that Ellen White was an inspired writer, important writer. Some of you today don't know her at all. I will just ask you, does this quote have the ring of truth to it? Does it ring true to you? I submit to you that it rings true. And the call of the sermon, the point of the sermon is to do what the boy, that first boy and then the girl in the video and then all the rest of the kids in the video, do what they did. You see something wrong, stand up, confront it, take action. Do what the woman who stopped the car did. Do what my friend Jim did. Don't be the person who just keeps watching television. Don't be the guy who, the two men that Jim saw that kept walking and the one who made the snide remark. You don't want to be that person. Over and over in scriptures, you're like all Christians, you all know scripture, right? Over and over in scripture, isn't God calling us and instructing us to be people who are true and honest in our inmost souls? Isn't God saying that to every one of us? Isn't over and over again, he's saying to us, stand for right, do what's right in all circumstances, even if it's risky, even if it might cost you something, do what's right. So that's all a big introduction. So for our guests, let's see, let's go. Why isn't it not going? There we go. Our church for the last several weeks, for our guests, we've been doing sermons that focus on various heroes of the Old Testament. People in the Old Testament who acted in a way that was heroic. People in the Old Testament who had real faith. Uh, that translated and affected and impacted and influenced how they live their lives. Today I'm going to look at, bring your attention to two very, very obscure figures um, in the Old Testament. Their stories in Jeremiah 37, 38, and 39. One is a king. His name is Zedekiah. Show of hands, how many of you have ever heard of King Zedekiah? A uh, fair number. And the other is named Ebed-Melik. And I went on the internet to learn how to pronounce his name. It's Ebed, long E, me, long E, leek. Ebed-Melik. One of these men called evil by its name. He spoke up when there was something wrong. And the other man feared to call evil by its name. He didn't speak up. One of these men, one of these two men, uh, stood for right at great, great risk to himself. And the other man, I'd say it's fair to say he stood for anything. He would stand for anything. Now I want to give you a little background on when they lived. They lived in the, and where they lived. They lived in the nation of Judah. Israel and Judah, most of you know this, but were like sister nations. And it was bad time for Judah. God had called out the Hebrew people to be like his people on the earth, to demonstrate who he was and what he was about to the people of the earth. 
the Jews were a special people. I have a friend here who's Jewish. Jews are special, right? But they didn't do so good. They weren't representing him the way they should represent him. And, there, and in the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, it tells stories of the various kings. And you had David, who was good. Things were good. You had Solomon. Okay, he was fine. And then things start rolling downhill. Once in a while, there's a king who's all right, leads his nation well, but more often than not, you had some kings that were lousy. And finally, you come to King uh, Zedekiah. And so God announced to the prophet Jeremiah, uh, Babylon is going to take over for the next 70 years. You're not going to be in charge of the government anymore. I'm taking it away from you. It's going to be in charge of this Nebuchadnezzar. going to be in charge of Babylon. That's not happy news. Who wants to hear that? And so, Jeremiah 37, 1 through 2. So Zedekiah gets made the king by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Essentially, Zedekiah was a puppet. He was a puppet set up by Nebuchadnezzar. And, it's, and it says uh, that neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. So that he's the king, but he doesn't pay any attention to what God is saying that Babylon is going to be in charge. In fact, he just doesn't pay any attention really to much of anything. But then we see this. Even though he doesn't pay attention, he knew. He had what I'm going to call head knowledge. It says here in the next verse, King Zedekiah sent, forget the name, to Jeremiah the prophet with this message. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. So Zedekiah knew something about God. He had some head knowledge about God. He wanted prayer from the prophet. Problem being, but he didn't pay any attention. And that's a problem that you and I don't want to have, that we have head knowledge. And, oh, we pray, oh God, oh please, please, please. But then we don't listen. We don't listen to the answers. So, this next slide here, Jeremiah 38, 1 through 3. And if you can't read the words well, um, it's in your Bibles, Jeremiah 38, 1 through 3. And I left out the names, but there were some really important men, some leaders. I'm going to say the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Commerce. Uh, Zedekiah's cabinet came up to him. They heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, this is what the Lord says. 
Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. The city will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. That wasn't a message that Zedekiah's Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense and Secretary of War wanted to hear. They didn't like it. It sounded like treason to them. It was treason. You're telling us to give up and roll over and go over to the Babylonians? Something about God says this? Uh Uh-uh. We don't like this message. Was it really God's message? The answer is yes, it was. It really was his message. Was Jeremiah really his prophet? Yes, he was. He really was. Now we go to the next verse. Then the officials said to the king, this man should be put to death. For those that were in my Sabbath school class this morning, it's just like the Sabbath school lesson. We need to put Paul to death for what he's saying. This man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. And so King Zedekiah, if he had been a stand-up guy, would have said, no, absolutely not. This is God's prophet. He has a message from God for us. What are you saying we should put him to death and kill him? Wrong! He was the king. He could have said that. A stand-up guy would have said that. But instead, this is what he said. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. It's a pathetic answer. It's a pathetic answer. And so they took Jeremiah. You can read it. I'm going to sum it up. And they put him in a cistern. A cistern's like a well. It was an empty well. He sinks to the bottom of it. And there's only a bunch of mud down there. And he sinks down into the mud. So he has nothing to drink. There's no water. I'm I'm thirsty as I'm talking to you. I'm going to go get some water. I forgot to bring it up. He sunk down in the mud. There was no water. And coincidentally at the time, a famine was going on. He's got nothing to eat. It would not have been too fun down there in the cistern. The king could have prevented it from happening, but he didn't. He allowed it to happen. He is in your hands. The king can do nothing to oppose you. Yeah, actually, you could have done something to oppose him. So let's go on. Now we go to character number two, Ebad-Malik. You can read it. I'm going to talk about it. Ebad-Malik was an Ethiopian. That means he was black. And he was a eunuch. 
That means he was castrated. And I doubt that he agreed to the castration. I doubt that he volunteered for the surgery. Um, and he was a servant. His name, Ebed Melik, means servant of the king. He was not in a position of power. He was not the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense. He was a black, castrated servant. I bet in these days, in our day and age, there's the N-word. I bet there was a version of the N-word back in those days. In fact, I wrote a Jewish friend of mine and asked her about it, and there is. Well, at least in Hebrew there is. They probably spoke Aramaic. But I bet there have been versions of the word all over the place. Ebed Malik was a stand-up guy. What did he do? It's right here in front of you. Now the king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin, so he's in a public place. He's not like in the back room. He's not in his closet. The king was sitting in the gate of Benjamin and Ebed Malik went out from the king's palace and spoke to the king. He goes in a very public way, not quietly, not softly, not whispering. He goes in a very public way and he says, my lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly. Remember that Ellen White quote, the greatest one of the world is men who will not fear to call evil by its right name? He called evil by its right name. And I don't know, but I bet some of those men were sitting right there because this was a public place. My Lord, the, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet whom they have cast into the cistern and he will die right where he is because of the famine for there is no more bread in the city. He spoke up and he called out the king in a very, very public way and it was a risk just like for the boy in the video yeah, N-word? Well, you're going into the cistern too. You disrespected me. I put Jeremiah the prophet into the cistern. Hey, N-word, I'm putting you in the cistern. Goodbye. Ebed Malik took that risk in speaking up and seeking to save Jeremiah's life. Next verses. Well, I skipped a verse. I'll just tell you, as you're reading through the story, the king, the king is like, he like waves. He like, he's like a branch that waves in the wind. He says, oh, okay, you can go save him. Take, take, take a bunch of guys with you and save him. Go ahead. And why did he do that? I don't know. I don't know why. He was called out. I don't know. Oh gosh, I have thrown the uh, prophet of God into a cistern to die. Oh, not good. Okay, go save him. Or maybe he was just embarrassed in front of the other leaders. He tells Ebed Malik to go save him. 
Next verses, 38, Jeremiah 38, 11 through 13. So Ebed-Malik took the men under his authority and went into the king's palace to a place beneath the storeroom and took from there worn-out cloths and worn-out rags. Why would he do that? Why would you go get some rags and cloth? And let them down by ropes into the cistern to Jeremiah. Then Ebed-Malik the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, Now put these worn-out cloths and rags under your armpits, under the ropes. Why did he do that? So he wouldn't get cut. Because those ropes could cut into you. It's kind of like my friend Jim getting a sheet to put over the guy so he wouldn't get burned. Those ropes could cut into him as he's being dragged up. And I submit to you that by getting these claws and these rags and lowering them down, that was an act of kindness on his part. It was like the cherry on the cake. Not only am I going to save you, I'm going to save you so that you don't get hurt. So you're not bleeding. And so they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. But Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse. In other words, Jeremiah stayed incarcerated. He wasn't given his freedom. Who could have given him his freedom? Zedekiah. Zedekiah still doesn't do the right thing. But then this is interesting. Zedekiah, who had given his assent to having Jeremiah murdered, and then gives his assent to having Jeremiah saved, but then keeps him in custody. He then calls for Jeremiah to have him brought to him. I'm going to ask you something, the king said to Jeremiah. Do not hide anything from me. Once again, I think this is evidence. Zedekiah had head knowledge that, that Jeremiah was really God's prophet. That he had the head knowledge that Jeremiah really was speaking for God. And he wanted to, so there was something in him that wanted to hear what God had to say through, through Jeremiah. And now, to me, this is interesting. You know, Jeremiah was a stand-up guy. If somebody threw me into a cistern to kill me, I don't think I'd want to talk to him again. You want to talk to me? Uh-uh. You want to talk to me? Give me my freedom. I'll bargain with you. Then I'll tell you. You give me my freedom, then I'll tell you what God has to say. But Jeremiah came and talked to him. And that takes us to our next uh, Bible verse. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. If you surrender, he repeats the same advice. He doesn't like change what he has to say. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared and the city will not be burned down and your family will live. But if you will not surrender, 
to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians and they will burn it down and you yourself will not escape from them. We could take that to right where all of us live today. We are all called to surrender to God, every one of us. And if we surrender, it's thumbs up, is good. And if we don't surrender, it's thumbs down, it's not so good. That's the message Zedekiah, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah gave to Zedekiah. That's a message that I submit we receive. Every, those of us that come to this church every week, we get some version of that message every week. Surrender. Surrender, surrender. In my work in drug court, that's a message I'm giving all the time. I'm always advising people. Some listen, some don't. And here's Zedekiah's response. He says, I am afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians for the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. Did Zedekiah surrender? He did not. He did not surrender. And how did it come out for Zedekiah? I got to cheat here. Ah. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Jeremiah said, they will not give you over. Please obey the Lord in what I am saying to you that it may go well with you and you may live. This echoes for me with my clients. I'm always pleading with my clients, come on, do this. Honesty, open-mindedness, willingness. Show up, show up, show up. I have some clients here today, I'm talking to them. <laughs> show up, show up, show up. Please obey the Lord that it may go well with you. But if you keep refusing, I'll just sum it up. He told him it won't go well. You're going to die. Country's going to be ruined. Surrender, please. Second Chronicles 38, 36, 12. And if you go to Second Kings, one of the very last chapters in Second Kings, Jeremiah, the last chapter, they all have versions of what you're seeing um, on the screen here. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke for the Lord. And I'm just going to tell you what ended up happening. Disaster. Horrible disaster. He was taken prisoner. His children were taken prisoner. Everybody was taken prisoner. And Nebuchadnezzar, who wasn't such a sweet fellow, had all of Zedekiah's children murdered right in front of his eyeballs. So for you two men over here, imagine having your kids murdered right in front of your eyeballs. That would hurt. That would be really excruciating. And then the next thing that happens is they gouged out his eyes. After he sees his children murdered right in front of him, 
its eyes are gouged out. And the end of the story is he was kept in prison till he died. Surrender and it will go well, says Jeremiah the prophet to Zedekiah and to every single one of us. Don't surrender, it won't go so good, he said to Zedekiah and to every one of us. That's absolutely true. It was true for Zedekiah and it's true for every one of us. Now remember Ebed-Malik? So Jeremiah 39, 15 through 18. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard while he was in custody, the word of the Lord came to him. By the way, the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord can come to you anywhere. You can be in jail, you can be in prison, you can be at Billy Park, you can be anywhere in the Lord, word of the Lord comes to you. The word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Malik, and it says in this translation, the Cushite. And I just highlighted in heavy black, I will rescue you. I will save you. Because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Because you trust in me, I will save you. I like that. I like that a lot. God saved Ebed-Malik because he trusted in him. Zedekiah had head knowledge about God. He knew it would be useful to have some prayer. He wanted to know what God had to say. He just didn't adjust his life at all. He just kept living as he was living because he was afraid of other people. Zedekiah, now let me rephrase that. Ebed-Malik knew about God, but he didn't just know about him, he let it influence and impact his life. And I submit to you that's what we're all called to do. Well, that was a long time ago, Steve. Things are different today. So I'm going to invite a friend of mine named Cynthia to come up. Cynthia, if you would come up here. And I'm going to inter ask Cynthia some questions. I'm going to try and untangle this cord. So, we didn't do this very good. All right, do you have it okay? Yep. Okay. Can you turn around? Sure. Okay. So tell these folks who you are. Just what's your name? Who are you? My name is Cynthia, and I am a client of Mr. Trent Holmes. He represents me in uh -oh, drug court. Oh, attorney-client privilege. I better stop. Oh, yeah, huh? And he's also my mentor and my friend. Okay. So you've told him I'm, that we, you're my client. Uh, how is it that you happen to be my client? What caused you to become my client? Um, I have been a drug addict for about 20 years, um, in and out of prison for 10 of those. Um, and I was looking at a lot of prison time. And the day that I went to be sentenced for that six-year, eight-month term, 
uh, there was grace and mercy shown in the courthouse, and they referred me to drug court, and I met Okay, so you, you. Skip, you skipped over something. Why were you looking at six years and eight months? For what, what reason? Well, this go-around, it was for a residential burglary, a high-speed chase, um, a stolen vehicle, and I was also under the influence of drugs. While driving? Yes. Bad girl, doing bad stuff. <laughs> shame, shame, shame. <laughs> and then, do you believe God had mercy on you? I believe God is the one who had mercy on me. I believe it was only him. Okay. And she responded. She responded. So that was like a year and a half ago, right? Something like that? Two or three months ago now, I was at the courthouse. I'm at the courthouse all the time. And I saw Cynthia there, and it wasn't because she was set for hearing that day. Do you remember what you were doing that day? I know you remember. What were you doing? I was paying my fines. This was a girl who did residential burglary who stole cars, who wrote bad checks, and she's paying her fine. That's quite a transition. And I'll ask you, why were you paying your fine? Because it's my responsibility. It's her responsibility. So when I saw her there that day, I asked her to tell me what happened, because I didn't know her that well then. I really only really got to know her the last two, three months. I says, what took you from being, oh, you did one other crime we got to tell them about. <laughs> Bank robbery. Oh, you want me to tell them? Yeah. Okay. She's going to tell you about one other crime. So in 2011, I, uh, while under the influence of several things, I walked into Chase Bank in Oroville, California, and told them that I had a bomb, and if they didn't give me all their money, that I would blow up the place. Um, that was at the height of my criminal activity, and it's also, um, when I really think back, it's what marked me starting to have a belief in a higher power. Um, I know that I was saved for some purpose. So, really serious crimes that she did on purpose. You don't accidentally walk into a bank and say, I've got a bomb. (laughs) You don't accidentally do a residential burglary. You don't accidentally steal a car. You don't accidentally write bad checks. That's who she was. I would say her life was an evil life. And now she's paying her fines because it's a responsible thing to do. And I ask her, what took you from being that person to this person? And this is what I wanted to share with you. I know you remember your answers because they're your life. So that didn't happen by accident either. Um, I made a decision to surrender. I saw a group of people that weren't doing drugs and they were happy and they were living good lives and their families loved them and people didn't run from them, they ran to them and I wanted to be one of them. And so I surrendered, I surrendered to the 12 steps of NA 
and I surrendered to what I call my highest power, because my higher power is my peers and now you guys. Um, but I made that decision to surrender because I did no longer thought that it was a weak thing like I thought when I was a criminal. Um, I thought that it was an empowering thing because I saw these people smiling and they were genuinely happy and I wanted what they had. And so, so then I got you. a relationship. She surrendered to her higher power, her highest power. You all hear that? She surrendered to her highest power. We are all called to surrender to that highest power. If you have surrendered, great, surrender again tomorrow. If you've never surrendered, give it some serious thought. And then I got that relationship and I worked on it and I tended to it and it grew and grew and became something I never could have dreamed as what it is today. And I know there's only more room for growth. Um, I became of service. Um, I thought that sounded oh, corny. Do you, do you hear this? She became of service. <laughs> so talk about how you are of service. You're a bank robber, you're a residential burglar, you're a car thief, you're a drug addict. How could somebody like you possibly help anybody? So when the judge um, granted me drug court, the one thing that he said is, I want you to be an example. Because I am 48 years old and I'm in drug court, the majority of people are at least a decade younger than me. And uh, so I took his words to heart and decided that I, for once, wanted to be an example of something good. And when I got involved in NA, they told me that in order to stay clean and sober, you could uh, be of service. You could give back what was so freely given to you. And it all started making sense, so I started picking them up and taking them to meetings. Um, started answering my phone, even if it was 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, started showing them that it was cool to stay sober, that you didn't have to be high. Um, that's how I became of service, and um, they've served me way more than I have them. So, There was one more thing you told me. Uh, do you remember that last thing? You talked about it in Sabbath school this morning. Yeah, it's what I live by. I uh, no longer take small permissions. Um, I don't give myself the okay to just write one bad check. Because like, if your finances were like mine, you'd, you'd understand. It's okay. Or don't have that one beer. One beer is okay because I have 21 months clean and sober. So, you know, I can have that beer. I have it coming. But that's not okay today. Like, I can't, I have to have a driver's license, registration, and insurance. I can't drive to Walmart on a suspended license because it's not okay even if I got away with it. Small permissions for me means having integrity. I do in the light exactly what I do in the dark. So Ellen White said, the greatest want in the world is the want of men, and I'll say, and women, people. I'll say boys and girls, sixth graders and seventh graders and eighth graders and freshmen and sophomores and juniors and seniors and young adults and middle-aged adults and senior adults. The greatest want of the world is right in front of you here. Cynthia has become, in the second one it says, men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. 
She has become someone who is true and honest. She is someone who doesn't buy and sell herself. She is somebody who stands for right. Ebed Malik was a man who stood for right. Uh, Jeremiah was a man who stood for right. Standing next to me here is a person who stands for right. Every one of us can do this. So, um, Cynthia, I'll let you sit down. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Now, when I, again, as I've been preparing this sermon over for like a month now, I talked to various people about it, and I talked to John McDonald, and he said to me, well, don't just tell us about some good guy, tell us how to do it. So after Ellen White's very well-known quote about the greatest want in the world, the very next sentence is what's on the screen here in front of you. Such a character, I'll say the character of Ebed Malik, the character of the boy in the video who stood up, the character of my friend Cynthia, is not the result of accident. It doesn't just fall on you out of the sky. And she wrote, it is not due to special favors or endowments of providence. God doesn't say, oh, yeah, you, yeah, you'll, you'll be a stand-up guy, and you, you're, you're a television-watching guy. He doesn't, he doesn't do it that way. The invitation is there. The ability is there for everybody. And then she wrote, a noble character is a result of self-discipline, of the subjection of the lower to the higher nature, the surrender of self for the service of love to God and man. You want to be a stand-up guy, a stand-up gal? Surrender yourself completely, 100%, every part of you to service, service for other people. Maybe it's a guy lying in the dirt. Maybe it's a younger person at the NA meeting. Maybe it's a teenage kid getting beat up outside your front window. Surrender yourself for the service of love to God and to man. Um, John, that's how it's done. Okay. Oh, there you are. Almost done. We're going to have a hymn of dedication. It's on page 330 of, your, of the hymnals. It will be up on the screen too, but it's on page 330 if you like a hymnal. It's titled, Take My Life and Let It Be, and I invite you guys to come forward. And I just want to run over words in this hymn. And John, this is also to answer, how is it done? Take my life, take my hands, take my feet, take my voice, take my lips, take my silver, silver and gold, take my will, take my heart, take my love, take myself. That's very all-encompassing, isn't it? It doesn't leave anything out unless you give yourself permission, one of those small permissions, 
Well, you can have everything except my silver and gold. You can have everything except uh, my heart. You can have everything except... No, John, how is it done? You give him everything. No small permissions that you keep something in reserve. And if you do that, you become a stand-up guy, you become a stand-up gal. And with that, turn off my mic because I can't sing, and they're going to sing wonderfully. <laughs> and we invite you to stand up. Take my life and let it be with me for a closing prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you've made it possible for us to be all together today. I pray for myself, my friends from Oroville, my friend from Modesto, everybody here. Lord, help all of us, enable all of us to be people who will surrender to you, completely surrender to you. And we thank you, Lord, for every good thing that you have provided us and give us. Amen. Amen. Amen.